Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 591 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I've been busy because... I've been in the middle of the freelance feedback fiesta, you know, for the wonderful group of freelance writers that I mentor in the Freelance Writing Masterclass program here at the Australian Writers' Centre. And if you're not familiar with the Freelance Writing Masterclass program, it's actually only open to people who have completed a foundation course in freelance writing at the centre. And that includes courses like freelance writing stage one and travel writing and food writing and so on. And basically, it's for those people who want to take their freelance writing to the next level, where I give one-on-one feedback on their writing and on the pictures, as in not pictures, but pictures, P-I-T-C-H-E-S, you know, when you propose something, uh, that they send to editors. Uh, but I give that feedback, obviously, before they actually send it to an editor. So this is so they can have the best chance of success and Every month, I hold the Freelance Feedback Fiesta, (laughs) and that is a week-long event where every single month, where any member of the program can send me an unlimited number of articles to get feedback on, or the emails containing the pictures that they want to send to editors so that I can give feedback on them. So yeah, that's this week, and it's so great to see how proactive some of the members are, and I love it when I see them succeed and I see the fruits of their labor because it's right there in black and white when I open the newspaper or open the internet browser and I see their articles online. And especially love it when it's just, I actually see that not that long after we talk, you know, we end up seeing the articles in print. Um, So if you are in the Freelance Writing Masterclass program, keep on going. You've got until the end of this week for the fiesta. And I look forward to chatting to you one-on-one. Let's welcome Nat Newman, who is here with our writing tip this week. And of course, Nat is a writer extraordinaire, including, oh, she has so many interests. Uh, And she's also a creative writing tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre. How are you, Nat? I'm great, Valerie. How are you going? Good. What's been happening in that world? Oh, not a lot. Again, just, you know, plugging away at all my various projects. You know, (laughs) so many, I have so many plates in the air. Um, Yeah, just watching them all spin at the moment, to be honest. I know that we're going to move on to our writing tip, but I always, I want to ask you a question because I always am fascinated and intrigued by whatever app you're using at the moment, you know, so because I find them useful. I've adopted quite a number of your apps. So what app or apps are you loving currently? Uh, Notion is still my go-to. I use that for almost everything. Um, what else? You know what? This is going to sound insanely practical, but you know what's really useful? Invoicing software. Valerie, <laughs> go with me here. So if any if anyone out there listening does any sort of um, freelance work, um, I know that one of the most tedious things you can do is to actually write your invoices. And I know people who will put off doing the invoices for weeks, if not months, because they just hate doing them so much mm. because they're doing them in Word and Excel spreadsheets and whatever. No, just cough up, get some invoicing software and it, you can get free invoicing software. I use one called Zoho um, or you can pay a couple of dollars a month for some other ones. And just then you just put in the numbers, you put in the client, you put in their email and you send it. And it's almost like 
you're a super, you instantly become a professional office by the time you do that. And do you have a system as in do you go I invoice every Friday or, you know, a, a particular day each month or something like that to ensure you're on top of things? Yeah, I tend to do the first of the month just because, you know, it's just a convenient date for me. Um, but, yeah, you know, Mondays, pick, pick a date really. Honestly, everything comes down to systems. So pick a system that works for you. That but- is, And I think that's so important because that also shows a level of professionalism, that you are regular, that you do your admin, and you're not, as some people do, because I have experienced many of these people because I have commissioned when I was um, in magazines and in publishing, I commissioned many, many writers um, and to give you an example, a very high profile person who you would have heard of and who lots of people would have heard of would leave her invoicing. Okay. I've said it's her, but anyway, I would leave her invoicing really to the last minute, invoice you, and then start yelling at you the next day. If your invoice hadn't been paid, if her invoice hadn't been paid and it's like, I'm sorry, I work in a really large organization and you only invoiced yesterday and you only sent it yesterday. And I've sent it through to the accounts department, you know, don't yell at me (laughs) because of your slackness. Yeah. And she used to do that on a regular basis and you just had to get ready for all the yelling that would occur. Um, And we put up with it because she was kind of famous and we wanted to use her for that reason, but I wouldn't have made that choice to use her otherwise because I just found it extremely unprofessional. So, yes, make sure you have a system with your invoices. Yeah, yeah. It's so unprofessional and it's so easy to to do you know you can make yourself look more professional by you know just by using a piece of software and it's yeah great and the other thing is some invoicing software has um built-in reminders so they'll you can actually put into it um remind them send out an email reminder in two weeks time um but the thing with that is if they've paid within those two weeks that's another level of unprofessionalism on your part because you need to be checking whether they've paid or not before you send them a reminder. And you might think, oh, well, if they paid, they won't care. No, that's not okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So it's fine to send out a reminder, but make sure you check. Um, that they've whether they've paid or not but that that's that's not what we were meant to be talking about (laughs) but thank you for sharing that because I think it is relevant what is your writing tip this week yeah right so this week I want to talk about um, uh, drafting or when you move on to draft two or draft three Um, and I had a student ask me um, if if drafting is the same as rewriting. Um, and I think this is a common misconception. That's a great question. Yeah, I think this is a common misconception. I think people think that when you get to draft two, you're literally rewriting the entire manuscript. Um, and look, I'm sure you could if you wanted to, um, but it's just not necessary. You know, very often drafting is um, you might um, add things to a chapter, you might cut a scene, uh, you might merge two characters into one character. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that can go on, but it doesn't mean rewriting the entire manuscript. You've got, you've got most of it there. You're just kind of refining it. And in fact, I think that's why we've got a a course at the Writer's Centre called Cut, Shape, Polish. And I think that's a really, really great um, definition of what you're doing when you're going through that drafting or redrafting process. You're not rewriting, you're cutting, you're shaping, you're polishing, um, yeah, so so I think that's a really, really great way to think about it rather than rewriting the whole thing. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And especially if, you know, the, the first thing you should do is look at it from a structural point of view. Mm. So don't even bother with your little sentences at the, do, doing things at a sentence level in the first instance yeah. is to actually, especially in the Cut Show Polish course, one of the things that we um, suggest, well, one of the things that we show you is how to ensure that it works structurally, because if you don't have the bones, there's no point writing, rewriting or redrafting things at, at a sentence level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great tip. Okay. Thank you so much, Nat. And we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks a lot, Valerie. We're going to move on to my competition this week. This week, I'm giving away three copies of Body of Lies by Sarah Bailey, the best-selling author of The Dark Lake, Into the Night, and The Housemate, among others. You can also meet her on episodes 437. 252 and 215 of our podcast. So uh, we've had Sarah on a couple of times, well, more than a couple of times because we absolutely love her. And we love her not only because she's a fantastic author, but because she is a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre who has gone on to kick some fantastic goals. Body of Lies is a thought-provoking and provocative thriller adeptly capturing the intricate dance between police and media, filled with ample red herrings that will captivate readers until the final page. Here's the blurb. A car crash victim clings to life and is rushed to hospital, but can't be saved. Hours later, her corpse is stolen from the morgue. No one knows who the dead woman was or why her body was taken. Detective Sergeant Gemma Woodstock is back in her hometown of Smithson on maternity leave when the bizarre incident occurs. She is intrigued by the case but reluctant to get involved, despite the urging of her journalist friend Candy Fife. But in the days after the body goes missing, the town is rocked by another shocking crime and Gemma can't resist joining the investigation. Candy and Gemma follow the clues the dead woman left behind. As they attempt to discover the identity of the missing woman, Gemma uncovers devastating secrets about the people she thought she knew best. The closer Gemma gets to the truth, the more danger she's in. She desperately needs to confide in someone, but is there anyone she can trust? All right, well, I have three copies of Body of Lies to give away. Entries close on the 4th of March. Just go to writercentercomau slash win and follow the instructions. I've made it super easy for you. That's writercentercomau slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are because the word of the week is orotund. That's O-R-O-T-U-N-D, orotund. Do you know what it means? Well, it is similar to rotund, as in something large and round, but orotund is an adjective meaning a voice that is characterised by strength, fullness, richness and clearness. So you could say Pavarotti's orotund voice led him to being considered the greatest tenor of all time. There you go. But be careful because it can sometimes also mean pompous or bombastic. There you go, orotund. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Let's hear from Sarah Bailey. My name's Sarah Bailey. 
Um, I've got a debut novel through Alan and Unwin out at the moment. It's called The Dark Lake. It's a crime thriller. I was working in advertising at the time and I was working at a great company and had a really sort of good career, but I just had this burning desire to write all the time. I'd heard really good things about the Australian Writer Centre's course. Um, the reviews were always really positive and people always sort of providing really good feedback on social media. So um, I just thought that was a really good place for me to start. I found Nicole Hayes, the tutor that I had in the course that I did through the Australian Writer Centre, really inspiring. Um, really down-to-earth um, teaching style, but just a really great way of um, pulling together some of the writing skills that she's picked up over the years. She had such a passion for narrative and structure um, and being a published author, she had some, some really practical um, advice and knowledge to share as well. The process for me was just setting my own deadlines, which was something that was covered off in the Australian Writer Centre's course as well. Went, this is how many words I'd like to have by these different points along the year and then I um, just worked towards getting the words down and then I sort of um, approached agents and then the agents helped me approach publishers. In the end when Alan and Unwin decided to publish the novel and um, that was all confirmed, it was, it was amazing. It was just such an amazing um, experience to go through and I felt really fortunate um, but also really proud because it had obviously been you know, a really hard, um, hard sort of journey to get there. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that writing was something that was really, really important to me. And then of course, you know, through meeting the people and the tutor that I had, I also picked up a lot of really invaluable skills as well. I think it really just set me off on the right path. Um, and then since then, obviously, so much has happened in my world in terms of writing that I really do see it as the first step um, that, I, that I took along that path. It's amazing. I've, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position where that's, that's my current life. So I think that was, a, that was hugely important um, in terms of getting, getting started. Definitely anyone who's interested in writing and sort of taking a, a, a more serious step toward that as a career or even just a, a more specific hobby, I think the Australian Writer Centre's courses are really worthwhile. I think it's just, it's always nice to be um, in an environment where people are passionate about what you're passionate about. Um, and I think that the, um, the skills and the information that you get from, from courses like that just, just help you sort of really focus. For me, the creative writing course was, was a great starting point. I think it just made me um, rediscover my love for writing at a basic level all over again. Um, so I think that I've definitely spoken to other friends and have suggested that they give it a shot. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creativewriting. Now let's move on to our writer-in-residence this week. Jane Tara's latest novel is Tilda is Visible. She is also the general manager at Better Reading. This novel is a clever story about a woman called Tilda who is diagnosed by her doctor with invisibility, an affliction that affects many women of a certain age. I thought it's such a clever premise and wondered how in the world Jane was going to tackle this that I had to talk to her. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jane. Oh, thanks for having me, Valerie. I'm so excited about this conversation. <laughs> I'm very excited too. Tilda is Visible is your latest novel and it's so interesting. It's such an in interesting premise. So before we plunge straight into many, many questions, can you tell listeners what it's about? So Tilda is Visible is about a woman, Tilda, who is in her 50s and she wakes up one day and uh, her little finger is missing and she's diagnosed with invisibility, which is quite a, it's not an uncommon disorder for women over 50. Uh, 
And as she starts to disappear, she really needs to um, start to look at her life, uh, the way that she thinks about her life, and certainly start to address some trauma that she's had in her past. Uh, So she goes on a a journey of healing, really, um, before she disappears. And the journey is actually learning to see herself again. This is such a clever premise because Tilda, you know, her her little finger, she can't, it's not that her finger goes missing, it's that she can no longer see it. And and you talk about this uh, affliction that starts occurring to various women, but it is set in in like a modern day Sydney, right? Yes. It's it's not in some fantastical otherworldly world. It's just set in normal life. And so I was very intrigued with how you're going to carry this out. <laughs> <laughs> so was I, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> It's so clever. Yeah. How in the world did you come up with this very unusual idea? So uh, about 10 years ago, I went for my annual eye check and uh, the optometrist ended up calling in the kind of head optometrist of the business in and there was a lot of hushed conversations and then more com- more uh, photographs of my eyes and, you know, it was a very long appointment for what was just meant to be a very quick one. And in the end, I was told that I had retinitis pigmentosa. I was diagnosed as going blind. So they were setting up um, an appointment with the Royal Blind Society and they were setting up an appointment with the Centre for Eye Health at the University of New South Wales. And that's funded by the Guide Dog Association. And apparently there, they would have been able to give me much more extensive tests to tell me when I would lose my sight or how much I'd already lost. So it was it was quite horrifying, actually. And um, the first appointment that I could get into at the Centre for Eye Health was nearly three months away. So for three months, and I went back to the original place a few times and had more tests, but uh, for nearly three months, I lived with the possibility, the, the thought that I was going blind. Um, so it was a misdiagnosis. And I didn't find that out for three months. But during that time, I started to think uh, after I initially panicked and drank a lot of red wine and went down (laughs) a rabbit hole of like, what was I going to do? After that, I started to research what it meant to see, just sight, really unusual, um, you know, ophthalmologists around the world who were using light and um, studies that had been done on blind people who'd been... uh, taught to see through their chest and all of these really unusual things around sight and what it means to see. And that started me questioning things on a kind of more metaphysical level, I guess. But one of the incredible things that happened during this three months was that I looked in the mirror one day and it was like a complete shift in perception of how I saw myself. I, like most women, was highly critical of myself. You know, I'd have good days, bad days, but, you know, there was always that underlying voice of criticism there. And um, suddenly it was silent. And I looked at my face and all of my wrinkles and my ageing that I'd, you know, in, in the past been critical of 
and just thought, oh my God, if I don't see myself age, I'm losing such a gift. I, I want to see myself age. And it was a really profound experience that shifted the way I saw myself. And so after I had the um, other test and was told that it was a misdiagnosis, uh, you know, that didn't shift back. I still continued to look in the mirror and see myself age with a, a, I guess, a form of gratitude or something. So the idea for Tilda started from that experience about what does it mean to see? How do we see ourselves? How do we see the world? Um, And those are pretty big questions that ended up, you know, in this book. Wow. Um, That is profound. Mm. Um, And uh, that whole concept of not being able to see yourself age is something, honestly, I've never actually thought about, but I have thought about this idea, this condition that um, afflicts many women uh, over a certain age that they suddenly become invisible. It's this mm. it's this uh, trope that we hear when we're younger. So in my 30s, I heard this and I didn't understand it. I heard this and I thought, what are they complaining about? You know, until I exp- had my very first experience of I was literally invisible, even though I was right in front of this woman, young young girl, really, in, in the shops uh, at a bakery in Avalon. Not to throw shade on any bakeries in Avalon. <laughs> They're fantastic. They're absolutely wonderful. But, you know, the recruitment of this young girl obviously was a reflection of certain attitudes. Um, and, and I thought, oh, my God, this is what they're, 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 they're talking about. Do you recall your first experience of invisibility? I think it crept up on me. Um, I think I had quite a few experiences before I realised that I was invisible to others and it was definitely in my uh, sort of mid-40s and and probably around a similar time that I had this misdiagnosis. Um, But I was in a, you know, a marriage that I (laughs) had gone on too long and, um, you know, I was very invisible at home with, you know, my needs and, and, you know, putting everyone else first as well. I'd lost sight of myself and what I needed and wanted. So I was actually going out into the world with that, with that, you know, it's like, you know, I'm invisible at home. Well, of course, no one else is going to see me. Um, so there were experiences in queues or waiting, you know, at a bar or, you know, feeling like a dinosaur in places, all of those little experiences that women start to have, um, in their, generally in their forties, I think that are completely magnified by perimenopause and all of the other stuff that's going on and how much they're doing in, in their lives. Um, so, you know, I think mine was kind of a slow sort of realisation. And then I started talking to other women about it and realised how common it is, how common. We all feel this at some stage. And then my poor mother, who's 82 and like, in my opinion, the most visible woman ever, she's just wonderful, you know, had an experience in a bank yesterday and called me after and she goes, they just didn't see me. They were looking at me, but they didn't see me. And the way that they treated, it's like, I'm, I just don't exist anymore, you know? And so it gets progressively worse unless we do something about it, I guess. (laughs) 
Wow. So you started talking to other people about it. And um, one of the things that Tilda, the character, does is she gets referred to this, like an invisibility support group, (laughs) you know, which is like really normal, like a gardening society or something. (laughs) And she, you know, gets to talk to other people who uh, have the condition as well and experience it in different ways. Um, When you were talking to people about it, um, did you then come up with any uh, strategies or tips to overcome the invisibility in real life? Well, I was People all- will have to read the book to know what happens to <laughs> Tilda. <laughs> well, I was already on that journey um, myself and, you know, I, I don't think it's giving anything away to say that uh, Tilda had to really address her own thoughts through um you know, a meditation practice actually she went into and sort of neuroplasticity and stuff. So I'd already really started on that journey and realised that my inner dialogue was, um, you know, I think sometimes we can be just so cruel to ourselves. We're way worse than other people, you know, and and I think um, this program that, uh, this internal program that goes on a loop in our head, we can change that. So I'd started doing that um, through meditation and taking time out to actually sort of reflect on how I thought of myself and, you know, how I was thinking about the world around me. Um, and as that started to change, I incorporated that into my conversations with girlfriends and, um, I actually had one birthday a few years ago. I was right in the guts of writing this and uh, I invited, I think it was about 10 really great women around to my place for a let them have cake um, birthday. And I bought the most fabulous cake. It was like a really expensive, beautiful cake. And we all had a, I'd seen it on TikTok or something, had a champagne glass where we grabbed a big thing of cake and we sat down and we ate cake and we talked about, you know, eating cake because, oh, you know, we're also like, you know, hung up on putting on weight or whatever. But the the way that we think about that and the way we think about ourselves and how we're not celebrating ourselves and why we aren't kind to ourselves. And it was so interesting to go dig deep into this with this quite diverse group of women. And, um, I took a lot of that into into the characters, I guess, in the novel and some of the struggles that different women I know have and um, some of the internal stuff. And uh, so there's elements of, of my friends. There's certainly, you know, no one in particular, but, you know, elements because I think that this story is not, um, it's not particularly unusual. It's actually really common with women of a certain age. So I want to circle back to your experience with invisibility, but let's go into the actual writing process uh, now. And when did you get the idea? How long, just a bit of a potted timeline, you know, how long did it take you to write a first draft? Um, And what was the timing of of your journey to publication with this book? So uh, I, not long after the initial experience of the misdiagnosis, um, I wrote a story about a bunch of other women um, and the protagonist was someone else, but Tilda was a minor character in that. 
and it was set in London and Tilda was a florist and I didn't know much about her, but um, there was this idea that she was losing sight of herself in this sort of short story. And I just sat with that for 10 years and I really, you know, I, I kept, I, I was in the middle of single parenting and writing to support my kids and all of that sort of stuff. And, um, but I, I always knew that I wanted to go back and explore this idea. And of course, you know, as time progressed, I had more experience with invisibility and also coming out the other side of it, because I don't feel invisible now. I might not be seen in certain, you know, places that I go or whatever, because of my age and certain situations, but, um, but I don't feel invisible. I see myself very clearly. And I think that's the key and that's what the book is about. Um, so I, um, played with it over a few years. I was writing other stuff during this time and then lockdown happened. <laughs> like so many people who've got books coming out around <laughs> now. <laughs> I was very fortunate that um, both of my sons are older, were at home with me um, and I was able to work from home. So I was lucky in that sense. And I was able to just take a breath and use the extra time that I had to really piece together what I wanted to say here. So I walked out of the second Sydney lockdown with a finished manuscript. Wow, that's great. And then it took me a year to show anyone. Wow. Okay. So let's just talk about the writing of it because you had this idea, vague idea from this short story, but it takes a lot more than that to mm. make it into a novel, like a fully fledged manuscript. So did you, because it's such an unusual premise, right? Mm. So did you plot it out from the beginning? Did you know what was going to no. happen? Really? No, no. And I tend not to, I wish I did. Um, and I, I love when I hear that people do, but I'm probably too neurodiverse or something. I'm a, like, I just go with it and see where the characters take me. But I always, and I've done this with the next one I'm working on, um, in the very early stages of a story, I always write the final chapter. So it's almost like you know where you're going. I know where I'm going. I just don't know how I'm going to get there. Oh. And it's and it's up to the characters to kind of talk to me along the way. Um, and, you know, I do, uh, I'm a little woo-woo, you know, I do <laughs> believe that I'm sort of handing myself over to something because there are, and I, I'm struggling with this with the, the current one, you know, there are so many ways that a character can go, so many directions to change the story. So I, I like to meditate and I just like to sort of really sit in that and just have a trust that I'm going to take the characters in the direction that is best for the story and for them. Um, but I always have, I know that final chapter and that's, it's like the arrow is going now. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So um, you, you had a, a full manuscript by the end of the second Sydney lockdown, when you came out of the second Sydney lockdown, but how long, Just can you just give me some months or whatever that it took you to write that manuscript? Uh, um, I'd already done little chunks, little bits and pieces f over a few years, 
but I sat down and really hammered out that first draft in four months. Okay, great. And then when you say it took you a year to show it to mm. anyone, um, who did you show it to and why did it take you a year? I was really worried about showing people because it is unusual yeah. as well. Uh, and But it works. Yeah. So clever. Yeah. And it's, um, uh, it, I, I work with so many of the publishers as well. So I really felt quite vulnerable putting myself out there. Mm. And because the, um, the story is, while it's not all me, it is, um, so much of my story and my personal story is in that. So, and, and I think that's kind of obvious to anyone who reads it. And I, I think that's why when I finally got around to finishing that draft, it worked because I'd really put myself into it, but then to show it to someone, I felt really vulnerable. Um, but then I spoke to, uh, Belinda Alexandra, who I have great respect for, and she's such a wise woman. And I, and, but she also um, has uh, an interest in meditation, like I do, a similar style. So I called her up and I said, you know, this is what the book is about and everything. And she said, um, you need to talk to Kelly Doust at Affirm. And, uh, you know, that was amazing because Affirm, I just love Affirm Press. Um, I've always loved working with them at, at Better Reading and um, have such respect for them, but I didn't know Kelly. So, you know, I was able to get an introduction to Kelly and she read it and she has an interest in uh, both that kind of self-help area mm -hmm. and also women's fiction. And my book, sort of merges both of those. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it went to her, it was 120 something words. And oh, wow. yeah, then we, um, I, I had to just take a slasher to it and get it down to just under 90. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> right. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. So I want to circle back, as I said, to your experience with invisibility because I do think that a lot of listeners would be interested. Um, now, you mentioned that you no longer feel invisible and that's a very much an internal thing and, it, it, and a lot of it um, was helped by your meditation experience and so mm -hmm. on. Um, but the external surface level invisibility, as you say, which certain women of a certain age experience in shops or bars or your mother just mm. had the experience in the bank, um, that still occurs. Is there, have you figured out, do you, are you now at a stage where I, oh, I've just accepted that and I don't give a toss or mm -hmm. do you have strategies of making yourself visible? Because sometimes you just want to order your drink <laughs> or, or get served by the bank teller. Yes, <laughs> I would say that it doesn't happen to me as much as it used to. Because of the mindset? Probably. Yeah. Yeah, right. probably. Um, you know, I was always apologising for myself and I, you know, felt, I, I guess, even to the point where I felt worthless at times, you know, and all of this kind of snowball balls during perimenopause and, you know, that really hormonal period for women. Um, and I just, I just 
the way that I saw myself was not very pleasant, like very kind. And I guess I projected that to the world as well. Um, so I don't experience it like that anymore. I feel visible that, you know, if it, if it happens to me, I can brush it off, you know, and I know that it, um, is still a thing. I know that I'm in my fifties. I know that if I say went for another job now or something, I wouldn't be at the top of the pile of who they were going to choose probably because of my age. Uh, but mm, I just don't experience it. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's such a powerful time for women. The Mm. 50s is really such a powerful time. And I think we're, we have more opportunities now than ever at this age. I think, um, like, I know that there's a lot of books coming out this year that really talk about the female experience of over 50s and even over 60s. Uh, there's a lot of really empowering stories around at the moment. And I just feel like it's a really exciting time for women over 50 to kind of reclaim themselves. Mm. (laughs) I might be completely wrong, you know, but it's how I view the world at the moment. And that's, you know, that's a positive thing. It's And you've done the internal work Mm. because had you not done that, you would probably still be feeling the way you felt before. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And I continue to do the work every day. You know, I, I meditate for an hour every day. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a long, a big chunk of your day. (laughs) Yes. But I feel more productive when I do it. So if I meditate for an hour, I just feel calmer. I feel like I'm in flow. I feel like I can juggle everything that I need to juggle. And I feel happier I guess yeah yeah my mind is a happier place what was the most challenging thing about writing this story putting myself in it oh Mm. what do you mean well you know I could have kept Tilda at arm's length and you know she was completely a fictional character and I certainly did that in the first draft uh but I see the story and each edit that I've done is almost like a, a, a deeper loop of a spiral of what's happening or happened to me personally. And I think each time I, you know, had the courage to put more of me into Tilda, um, it worked better. Uh, but it was an unnerving experience. I took, you know, great inspiration from people like Trent Dalton, who freely talks about, you know, how, you know, it's a, it's a fictionalized, but it's a version of his life. And, you know, he's, he's lovely and, um, amazing and talks about writing from the heart. Um, but, uh, so I think I'd already written Tilda. I heard um, him recording a podcast and I just went, you know, it just needs more more of me because the themes were in it but not my personal experience and pain, I guess. Um, and so I just really dug in deep and put more of myself into the character. And, uh, you know, I think I I 
do believe that's why it's resonating with people when they read it. Yes. When you work in the industry, in the books and publishing industry, and you're surrounded by books and publishers and, uh, you know, you get to see it almost from a, uh, a, a, a business sense, you can see, oh, that book did well, that book didn't do so well. You know, you you, you kind of observe it from an um, eagle eye kind of view. What are the some of the pros and cons of being in that position when you're writing your own book? Um, well, you know, obviously the position that I'm in um, with readers and knowing people in the industry has been beneficial. And, you know, I hope it's beneficial, but it also puts me in the position where, yeah, I'm pretty petrified about this book coming out because, you know, every, you know, everyone's talking about it. And if it doesn't do well, I'm going to be that story that they do, you know, remember that book that you know, came out. A few That's years not going to happen, Jane. It's so <laughs> clever, this book. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's just being comfortable with feeling vulnerable given the position that I'm in. I, I don't know what makes a bestseller. I've, you know, I've read and reviewed books that I really thought were going to do much better than they did. And then some books that, you know, they're okay, do exceptionally well. So, um, you know, what is it? What's the magic behind something that, you know, the timing, who knows? I, I, I don't. Um, but I, I mean, for someone like Trent Dalton, I can see that um, you know, he put in the work, it's great writing, it's an amazing story, all of that sort of stuff. So all of those things came together for him. And I guess they do for every book that, you know, becomes a bestseller. So, you know, all I can do is cross my fingers and hope. And uh, and in the meantime, it's in the lap of the gods and you just keep writing your next one. And <laughs> So are you now writing your next one? And is it, can you tell us anything about it or? It's, I I am, and it is um, a similar, it it doesn't have the magical realism in in it at all, but um, it's a sort of multi-generational story about the stories we tell ourselves. And um, I know that, I know the final scene, the final (laughs) chapter, so I know where I'm going, but the rest of it, no idea at the moment. <laughs> I love that approach. Okay, well, we always finish with what are your top three writing tips, what your top three tips for people mm. who are listening to this and would love to be in a position where you are one day? Uh, the, my top three writing tips, um, I'm stealing one of them, and I think it was from Michael Robotham, but I'm, I, I can't guarantee that, but I heard it on a podcast and I absolutely do this when I'm writing. Um, If it's him, he has a sign on the wall that says, make them care. Mm. And I do that as well. I get to the end of say a chapter sometimes and look and I go, are they going to care? Are they going to care about that? Are they going to care about the characters and where they're at at the moment? Sometimes I really need to go back and, and the second tip um, is, you know, I think have courage and for me, you know, that was certainly digging deeper into um, this character because, uh, you know, she her experiences were very much my experiences 
in my past. So, you know, each time I kind of thought, I don't think they're going to care about this. I went, okay, courage, really got to have courage here and just put yourself into it as much as you can. And the third one I would say, and this keeps coming into um, my head, it's like my internal dialogue is, this is what it tells me now when I'm writing, particularly with what I'm writing at the moment, is sometimes we can overwrite or try and make things too complex. And so when I reread something and I'm thinking, oh, I just don't know where this is going to go. It's always like an internal voice that says to me, keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Keep it simple. It's really peel back the layers of what you're trying to say and just find that, that the core of it and go from there. And usually there is a much clearer thread that can be taken through a story if you do that. They're great tips. Oh, okay. So Tilda is visible, uh, is such a fantastic novel by Jane Tara. Everyone go get a copy. Thank you so much for your time today, Jane. Valerie, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for having me on. I absolutely loved talking to Jane and I hope you found that conversation useful as well. Now, before I wrap up, I wanted to leave you with this fun fact. The word to eavesdrop as in, you know, to listen in on what someone else is saying, comes from the practice of standing at the edges of the roof of a building where, you know, rain drops from the eaves and listening to what is being said inside. There you go, eavesdrop. All right, we've now come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I've really enjoyed bringing this episode to you. If you do want to connect on social media, a great place to start is the podcast community group, listener group on Facebook. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join and uh, there's lots of conversations happening in there. Also, feel free to connect with me personally on social media. I'd love to connect with you. Um, I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter sometimes, mainly on Instagram and also on Facebook. I'm also over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.